Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. Today, in honor of the United States Marine Corps, on November the 10th, turned 242 years old and are still fighting like devil dogs. So, as a tribute, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Marine Corps. And I'm going to concentrate on one particular battle that most people have never heard of, but one that's extremely important in Marine Corps history. Now, there's about 10 different ways I could get this started. You can only do one at a time. And so what I want to start with is a friend of mine, Bobby Nyman. And we were friends for many years. And Bobby Nyman loved history. And we would visit during lunch. We would meet somewhere over in Longview, meet in Kilgore. And one day at one of the meetings, he asked me a question. He asked me, do you know why the Marine Corps is the best? Podcasters, I could fill a volume of books. But I wondered what he thought. He'd never been in the military, but he read a lot of history. And I'll never forget what he said. I would tell this to my students from time to time. He said this, the Marine Corps is the only branch that knows its history. And podcasters, we know our history. For example, in the Marine Corps, we teach Marine Corps history. A recruit would be marched to a classroom and he will be taught Marine Corps history. Drill instructors reinforced Marine Corps history. When I was a recruit, I learned it. When I was a drill instructor at Paris Island, I reinforced it by teaching it as well. Now, to demonstrate what I'm talking about, Marine Corps history, I would do this sometimes for students in front of them pretending that someone is asking me questions, such as, when was the Marine Corps created? November 10th, 1775. By who? The Second Continental Congress. How many Marines? Two battalions. Now, I have to mention something here, podcasters. There was the Continental Army, Continental Navy, Continental Marines, where did the Corps come from? I've tried to find that. And if any of you attending class knows the answer to that, please email me at jarhead, yes, jarhead, initials, dvs, at gmail.com. But it had to come from somewhere. And so my thinking is this. In the Civil War, the Union Army was so large it was made up of corps, C-O-R-P-S, First Corps, Second Corps, Third Corps, Fourth Corps, and so on. So I'm assuming that the two battalions of Continental Marines made up a corps. So they were a corps of Marines. Where was the first recruiting office? Well, the No Place Like a Bar, Tun Tavern, Philadelphia. Who was the first recruiter? Captain Samuel Nicholas. Commission? Why was it? Recruiting in a bar. Come on, podcasters. Come on. A couple of brew, and that Marine Corps sounds a whole lot better to you. 
Now, we had little jokes. And in the Corps, there is such a thing as the Old Corps. The Old Corps. Now, I'm a member of the Old Corps. Joke was, back when they created the Marine Corps in 1775, what did the first Marine say to the second Marine? And what he said was this. If you think it's tough now, you should have been in the Old Corps. When I was a drill instructor, I took one of my platoons down to clothing where they get measured, get ready to get their, their uniforms. And next to me was a private. He wasn't in boot camp. He graduated. He graduated about six months before. And he was telling me, boot camp has sure gotten easy. I cannot believe what you drill instructors are letting these guys get away with. So I asked him, I said, when did you go through boot camp? Oh, he said, six months ago. It's really changed in six months. Podcasters had not changed a bit. There is a feeling, I don't know about the other services, that things have eased up, they're not the same, they're destroying the core that we were in. Things have changed. The only constant is change. Well, had a friend, World War II Marine. And he'd come over and talk to me about the Corps. He didn't talk about war stories. When he mentioned about the islands he'd fought on in World War II, Petaloo and Saipan, he would tell funny things. Funny? What is funny about fighting with Petaloo and Saipan? Well, one of them he told me was, that he had a brother that was also a Marine. And when the war was over, they were visiting. And his brother said that they were on one of these islands and they were pinned down by Japanese fire. And there was a Marine some distance ahead of him looking at his brother, Lloyd's brother, and yelling. And he couldn't understand what he was yelling because of all the noise. So he crawled up to him. And when he got close enough, that Marine was yelling, Bermuda grass. When's the last time you seen Bermuda grass? One day I asked Lloyd. I said, Lloyd, in Vietnam, us young Marines, we looked at you World War II Marines as the epitome of the Corps. You Allen Hopping Marines from Guadalcanal to Okinawa put the flag up on Suabachi on Iwo Jima. And he smiled. I said, who did you think were the best, the epitome of the Marine Corps to you? And podcasters, he did not hesitate. He said, World War I Marines. They were the real Marines. We were the imposters. Well, a few years ago, I was watching the news, and in Afghanistan, the Marines were getting ready for a big push going to be a big battle. And there was a young African-American Marine. And he put his 782-year-old, he put his helmet on and picked up his rifle. And he looked at the camera and he said something. He said, this is our Bella Wood. And he repeated, this is our Bella Wood. That's all he said. 
right or wrong, good or bad, I could not help but think how many people watching this newscast and heard what that young Marine said even had a clue what he was talking about. Well, I'm going to give you a clue about what he was talking about. So to celebrate the birthday of the Marine Corps, rather than doing through everything that they've done, I'm going to tell you what that young Marine meant and the importance of a battle that most of you podcasters have never heard of. Bella Wood. Now, a little background. Wilson held the United States out of the war until 1917. The war started in 1914. It's going to be fought on two fronts in France. The Eastern Front against the Russians, if you're German. The Western Front against the Americans, the French, and the English. When we get there. They send the Doughboys over as the American Expeditionary Force. The AEF. When they got to France, Persian, the commander of the AEF, said, Lafayette, we are here. That was the battle cry. Lafayette, you probably know, was the French nobleman that served with Washington in the American Revolution. You helped us, now we're here to help you. Now, when they got there, the commander of the Allied forces wanted Persian to send the American soldiers into the English and French units as replacements. And Persian said, no. We came together. We're fighting together with one exception. And that one exception were the black soldiers, the black doughboys. Two things. First off, doughboy. A doughboy was a soldier in World War I, not two, not Korea. What do they mean, doughboy? Like bread dough. And there's where I believe it comes from. I've tried to find it. I've looked it up. The things that it said I do not agree with. Dough, dough, you got any dough, money? Americans had money. What do you think soldiers made? I know in the Civil War, a private was making, what, $6 a month? And the Marine Corps, when I enlisted in 64, we were making $78 a month. But maybe to some of the people in Paris that the $8 or whatever a doughboy was making then seemed like a lot of money. I have a different idea. Bread dough. World War I was the first war the American fighting man went to the front in a summer uniform, khaki, and also a steel helmet on his head. To me, the khaki uniform looks like bread dough, doughboys. That's where I believe it came from. Was a Marine a doughboy? Maybe to the French and the English, but not to the Marines. A doughboy was a soldier. You wouldn't call a sailor a doughboy, would you, Daniel? Marines are Marines. But Persian said, we came together, we're fighting together. And the French commander said, get them up to the front now. And Persian again said, no, they're not ready. With the exception of the African-Americans that he sent up there. And when I do World War I as the other part, as part of the course I would tell you more about those African-Americans that went to the front. 
Now, podcasters, I've read several books on World War One. One was The Long Way Home, and that was about the people that were caught up in that war in Europe, and they came to America to escape that war and ended up going back, getting drafted, enlisting to help get citizenship, patriotic. One was a German who was worried that he's going to have to fight his father who was in the German army. One that they concentrated on and told the story of was a Marine. I'm going to tell you right now, you read these books on World War I, and they're written by authors who were not in the military, who were not in the Marine Corps, and the respect they have for those Marines in World War I is unbelievable. It's a whole different ball game. Five lieutenants, nothing about the Marine Corps in there. The five lieutenants were Army lieutenants, all graduates of Harvard. One was a Harvard history instructor that left Ph.D., and went to France. Now the reason I'm mentioning that is because he was there, they were there in this training, and it was rough. They did not just sit around in their tents and talk about training. They were out there doing it. The other books I read, Last of the Doughboys. The author realized at this time, I think it was 2003, the Doughboys were dying fast, and he better go interview. A fantastic book. One of the Doughboys he interviewed wasn't a Doughboy. It was a Marine. And once more, they were different. Now, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because by the time they get to France in 1917, the Marine Corps is an elite fighting unit. It's very small, not even a division. Only the 5th and 6th Marine regiments were there. Now, we're talking about millions on the fighting front, and the 5th and 6th Marines are not hardly any numbers at all. But Persian knows they are good, and he does not want them to get any more glory. He does not like. I will use the word he hates the Marines. A student once asked me, why do they hate Marines? Well, podcasters, you can figure that one out. Who else was there that hated Marines? Douglas MacArthur. And someone else you may have heard of, Truman, who would become president. All of them had a high dislike for the Marine Corps. Somewhere, I have read, although I can't name every one of them, that they had tried to do away the Marine Corps ten times. Who are they? Congress, presidents. One was Andrew Jackson. I was eating lunch one day, and another friend of mine came over, and he called me Professor. Professor, 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 I know when I got a history question, I can ask you, and you know the answer. You told me how many men were killed at the Little Bighorn. You told me how many Japanese aircraft attacked Pearl Harbor. There's something else that's been worrying me, he said, and I know you know the answer. We got the Army to fight on land the Navy to fight on the water, the Air Force to fight in the air, and then he looked at me and said, why in the world do we need a Marine Corps? And I said, sir, were you in the service? Yes, I was. He said, I was in the Army. I said, you are not going to like my answer. And you know what, podcasters? 
He did not like my answer. And I simply said, we're the best. If we weren't the best, there'd be no need to have us. Persian, you, the men that were trained and ready to go were those Marines. But he wanted them nowhere near the fighting front. No glory, no publicity. So he had them loading and unloading ships in the rear with the gear. And then something happened. As I mentioned earlier, when Russia pulls out of the war on the Eastern Front in 1917, March, that's going to free up millions of German soldiers to come across France, hit the Allied lines that have been bloodied so much they are barely hanging on, and they're going to win the war. Now that took place in March of 17. It takes them a while to get over there. And in the spring of 1918, podcasters, they are there within 50 miles of Paris. And they break the French lines. And the Americans have to go into battle. Now, Bella Wood would be June of 1918. They start moving them up moving them up as fast as they can. They have to have the Marines up there. And as those Marines are walking up there, the French are going the other way, telling the Marines, retreat, retreat, retreat. You cannot stop them. You cannot defeat them. Retreat, retreat, retreat. And a captain by the name of Lloyd Williams, he had sick and tired of them telling the Marines to retreat. So he said, all right, here we go, podcasters. It's on iTunes. I'm not going to use the word that he actually used. It's not a bad word. You hear it all the time. It rhymes with spell. It starts with H. So you just remember that. Because I'm going to dance around it. But he was sick and tired of the French time to retreat. So he said, retreat, and then you say that word. We just got here. Marines are not retreating. They move up and they look across a wheat field 100 yards away are woods. These are Bella Woods. Bella Woods. B-E-L-L-E-A-U. Bella Woods. There are thousands of German soldiers in those woods. Marines use their bayonet to scrape out a little bit of earth trying to make a fighting hole. And it's not long until those thousands of Germans start coming out of those woods and into that wheat field that's about waist high. The Marines are using Springfield, 1903. Five round clips by World War II Marine Lloyd believed it was the finest weapon ever made. And the Marine Corps. I don't know about now, but when I was in and for many years, he qualified with the rifle. Marines are big on marksmanship. We qualified, you've got the closest to the target was 200 yards away. Then you move back to 300. Now you're at different firing positions every time. 200 yards, 300 yards, and then 500 yards. And we could hit those targets, podcasters. Those Marines looked out of those woods, and here they came, and they were 100 yards away. And when they were 100 yards away, 
they start firing. Bam. 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 And Germans had never seen anything like that. German soldiers were going down dead and wounded every time they heard a bam, 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 bam. They'd never seen marksmanship like that. I don't want to forget to tell you this. After the battle, when General Pershing heard what these Marines had done, as much as he disliked them, he said, the deadliest weapon in the world is a Marine and his rifle. Bam, bam, bam. The Germans stopped. Bam, bam, bam. Turned and ran back for Bella Wood. A sergeant by the name of Dan Daly was there, and he jumped up. Dan Daly already had two medals of honor. One for fighting in the Boxer Rebellion, another for fighting in Haiti. And he jumped up and he looked down at those Marines and he said, Come on. Now, here again, I'm not going to say what he actually said. You can look it up. So I'm going to change it. I'm going to make, Come on, Marines. And then he asked a question. Do you want to live forever? I shouldn't tell you this, podcaster, but it took me a long time to realize what he was saying. I thought, well, yeah, you know, I know you can't, but you kind of like to try, because if we got get over there in that woods, that's not what he was asking. Reading a book, the author said, as long as you are remembered, as long as they say your name, you're alive. Washington is alive. Jefferson is alive. So what he was saying was, you want to live forever? You want to be famous? You want people to talk about you forever and a day? Come on, Marines. You want to live forever? And those Marines got up with those bayonets on, and they took off through that wheat field into the woods. It's going to be hand-to-hand fighting. There's going to be poison gas. If you look on the Facebook, you will see a drawing of the Marines fighting the Germans in Bella Wood, and you can see some of the fighting, the poison gas mask. The Germans retreat, and the Marines drive them out of Bella Wood. Now, how long did that take? Four minutes? Three minutes? I'm going to tell you how long that battle was. The Marines actually went into action on the 4th of June, 1918, the woods were secured on the 26th of June. At that time, it was the bloodiest battle the Marines had ever been in. How bloody was it, Mr. Stroud? All right, I'm going to fess up. There were some soldiers there. I cannot determine how many casualties were soldiers and how many were Marines. They're just lumped together as the Battle of Bella Wood. But I'm not sorry about that because, podcasters, this is a Marine Corps battle. This is a Marine Corps battle. And so I'm going to give you the total casualties. 1,811 killed in action. 7,966 wounded in action. The most important thing about Bella Wood is this. The German enlisted men had never seen an enemy like they had just fault. They did not know who they were, so they called them devil dogs. They were devil dogs. 
and that is the most famous nickname of the Marine Corps, along, of course, with Leatherneck. German officers didn't use Devil Dog. They just said they were shock troops, highly trained shock troops. The French were so impressed, they renamed the woods the Wood of the Marine Brigade. The assistant secretary of the Navy was a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He idolized his cousin, Teddy, who was a Navy man, Teddy. Read a book on Franklin Delano Roosevelt as assistant secretary of the Navy and podcasters. He did a good job and he worked at it. But he wanted to go to France and see those Marines up to Bella Wood, so he went over there. He went to Bella Wood. They had him put on a Marine uniform so that a German sniper wouldn't pick him out. He claimed he gotten shot at. He fired a shot back at the Germans. But I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. He was so impressed with what those Marines did at Bella Wood, he authorized the enlisted men to do something that Marines today don't think twice about. When I was in the Corps, in the Corps now, you put your green blouse on, and you got a Marine Corps emblem on each collar. In World War I, only officers had the Marine Corps emblem on each collar, the Eagle, Globe, and Anchor. Franklin Delano Roosevelt authorized enlisted men to wear the Eagle, Globe, and Anchor on their collar. Well, you get one in France. They sent some Marines into town. They found a, a manufacturer that was manufacturing army emblems, which was simply the U.S. stamped on to look like a button to put on the collar. And they got them to step the Eagle Globe and anchor on them. These are very rare, and I have one of them. Put the Eagle Globe and anchor on your collar, enlisted Marines. Roosevelt gets back to Washington. He goes in to see President Wilson. He says, get another assistant secretary of the Navy. I'm enlisting in the Marine Corps. And Wilson looked up from his desk and said, too late. War is over. Armistice signed November 11th, 1918. Is that a good place to end? Yes, it is, but I'm not ending there. We're going to fast forward to World War II. Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. The Japanese attacked the Philippines, 1942. Douglas MacArthur commands the American forces of the Philippines. They're getting defeated. President Roosevelt orders him to get out of there. He gets on a PT boat in the middle of the night along with his family and they take off. He makes it to New Zealand. The men he left behind, I'm going to say that again, he left behind. Orders are orders, but he left them behind. And MacArthur got the Medal of Honor for that. And then, while in the New Zealand, he authorized military citations for every unit that fought in the Philippines, except the Marines. I'm going to say that again, Park, except the Marines. Who were the Marines there? Fourth Marines. In the Corps, we don't say regiment, we say Marines. Fourth Marine Regiment. Read the Pacific. Those Fourth Marines fought like devil dogs. And that's what one of the officers that heard MacArthur say that said, why not the Marines, sir? They fought like 
All right, here we go. Devil Dogs. And Mark Arthur said, Marines got all the glory they ever need at Bellwood. Citations for everyone except the Marines. Let's fast forward to 1950. Truman is president. FDR has passed away in April of 45. The commandant is called in, I assume, to the White House. I'm not positive. I know Truman did not like Marines. And he's told they're going to do away with the Marine Corps. It's going to be abolished. They may keep some around because they like those dress blues. They can guard some embassies. There's a fighting force, no more. The commandant gets in a car. I told my students, Marines don't cry. But I don't know what those wet things falling from his eyes were. He started the car and the radio was on. He heard breaking news. 100,000 North Koreans crossed the 38th parallel and attacked the Republic of Korea or the South Korea. And that Marine looked up and he said, Thank you, Lord. That saved the Marine Corps. Here we go again. After the dropping of the bombs in 45, many people believed there would never be another war like World War II. No infantry, nobody goes out in the mud, you just push a button, it's going to be all there is. The Army, when they had their soldiers out in the mud and the rain, they got letters from their mothers and said, you get my little boy out of that cold, you get him out of that rain. So they learned how to fight in a classroom. Well, the Marine Corps was small. I will guarantee you the Marines were out in that mud. They were out in that rain. We used to call it practicing to be miserable. So when Korea came in June of 1950, the only ones that were trained were those Marines. You read about the Korean War and the Army retreating. Now, some of the soldiers fought bravely. But generally, it was a stampede as fast as you could run to get away from the North Koreans, and they ended up way down south along a city by the name of Puthan. And here come the Marines. They saved them. They got the nickname the Fire Brigade. Wherever the North Koreans were going to break through, they'd send the Marines over. They would stop them. Then MacArthur takes them, although he doesn't like them, puts them on landing craft, just land at a place called Incheon, now, Inchon doesn't have a beach. You have ladders in your landing craft. You got to go up on this wall. And the night before the landing at Inchon, the officers were sitting around a table, and the commanding officer of the army said, No way we can land. We're not doing it. The naval commander said, You can't do it. There's no way. There's no beach there. And the Marine officer stood up and said, Gentlemen, we land at 0600. And they did. Now, I'm going to just tell you this. Those books, The Coldest Winter, The Longest Summer, and This Kind of War, written by T.R. Fehrenbach. T.R. Fehrenbach was in the Army in Korea, not in the Marine Corps. The authors of the other two were not in the service. Don't take my word for it, podcasters. Read them, and you will see the Marines, oh my goodness, they were the fighters. They were different from the others. So, 
Marine Corps birthday. 242 years old and still fighting like devil dogs. The next class, we will get back to the regular march. I will see you next time. Happy birthday, U.S. Marine Corps. And all of you that listened, I appreciate it very much. Class dismissed.